0: Good afternoon and good to see you and, um, and good for you to join us on the live stream as well. And I pray this um, message this afternoon is going to be a blessing for you. Um, taken, uh, taken upon me to do a study in prayer, uh, to be talking about those things that before God matter the most and for us is of infinite value. And also one of those things that I greatly fear, um, too many Christians do too little of, um, and uh, and I can only think that the only reason that that occurs is possibly because they've never seen the wonderful blessings that actually come from prayer, both personally and both uh, and and out with uh, with regards to our relationships out there. Looked at a text found in Luke chapter eleven. Let's draw our attention back here again just for a moment. Luke chapter 11. I'm just going to read from verses 1 to 4. I'm only going to be actually concentrating on verse 1 and only on five words of verse 1 for the message. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us, day by day, our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, excuse me, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I could only ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me as I share this burden this this message dear lord that's been on my heart i ask and pray dear lord that you would elaborate the wonderful truths that are found in the word of the living god and that you would bring them into the hearts directly to those who would hear the message this morning and that dear lord um, this sermon father may have a wonderful place within our hearts and encourage us lord to pray be with us dear father we ask in jesus name amen the, the, the title of the message is, is simply, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Four elements <coughs> that I wanted to have a look at with respect to this. And just in those five words, there's five things, most importantly, that, that I could see that is required before we'd even come to the point of asking this question and, um, or asking the Lord this, this petition. And that is, the first is recognizing our lack. The second is identifying his fullness. The third, humbling our spirit. And lastly, exalting his wisdom. We're going to be seeing that these four elements are very, very real and very present in those four words or five words. Um, We're not going to be going any further today because within these five words is more than enough for us to be able to get an understanding of, of what is going to be required of our own hearts to be asking the Lord such a question as this. First is recognising our lack. Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples here don't come to this question believing that they know how to pray. They come first to this question recognising they have a lack. Um, They don't truly know how to pray. And and no doubt this might have been after they had witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer himself. Um, The chapter begins with that first verse and says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. There's something within that that they may have seen the Lord Jesus Christ doing. They may have witnessed the Lord praying and as they witness the Lord praying they recognize I've never prayed like that I've never prayed like that and there's no doubt that many of us may have done exactly the same thing you may have heard a godly brother or a godly sister bending their hearts in prayer and you listen to them pray and you think oh I wish I could pray like that I wish I could pray like that And there's a key to it, and that key we're going to discover a little bit more further on as we go into the message this afternoon. The chapter begins simply with the Lord Jesus already found praying in a certain place. And it was not until after he had ceased that the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know whether or not this was the genuine inspiration for the question. We can only assume that that might be the case. Either way, it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is, before they come to this particular point, they had a recognition of their lack. They knew that they could not know how to pray, that the Lord might know how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. We have to have a recognition of things that we don't know. You see, you need to know that you don't know. Because unless you know that you don't know, you're not going to be open to learning anything. But if you don't know that you don't know, you're in a lot of trouble. And you are in a lot of trouble, you know, because you're not going to be looking for the opportunity to learn what you don't know, you know. That's the reality, you know, and that's the biggest problem that we have. The biggest problem that we have is that too often we think that we know when we actually don't know. And uh, and you would have met people very much like this, people who are literally impossible to come to, that are unwilling to come to an understanding of anything because they think that they know, they think that they know. Um, I don't know how many how many of you have been teenagers before. <laughs> yep. All right, you've all been teenagers before, so you've all been <laughs> you've all been in this position. All right. There's no question then, if you've been a teenager, then you've been in the position where you didn't know that you didn't know. <laughs> I said that once before. It was a whole bunch of teenagers there. And I said, okay, if, if you guys actually believe you've come to that point, that, uh, that you know it all, then it's evidently time to move out. <laughs> because there's nothing to be taught to those who know it all. And we have people that we know that are like that. These, however... These disciples had a recognition of their lack. They knew that they didn't know. And when they would have experienced or seen the Lord Jesus Christ praying, that and that alone would have been enough to convict them in their hearts that they desire to know, to learn how to pray. But for those who have no recognition of their lack, uh, there's no knowledge that they do not have answers to they seem to have answers for everything. And if they don't have the answer ready at at hand within their minds or in their hearts, as far as they're concerned, um, they don't believe that they need to know anything unless it's required at that particular time. So man today believes that they are the absolute center of knowledge, that man himself has a rational mind and that he himself can come to the knowledge of all truth. And when man believes this, whether it's in an individual sense or in a collective sense, which is the direction that much much of the Western human society is moving in, um, they are going to be uh, thinking that there's nothing that they can't know. And today we've got that. We've got that. For today, Google answers, not God. Google is the answer. If you don't know anything, just ask Siri. Or, 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 you don't like Siri... Ask Alexa. Yeah, if you don't like Alexa, you've also got Cortana. Um, there seems to be very, very many women these days who can provide answers to the lost questions of civilization through the internet. AI seems to manifest itself that way. Ask Siri, Alexa, Cortana, just not Jesus. Don't ask Jesus. I had an employee who actually believed this. I actually had, he, he truly believed that he didn't think there was any necessity to go to school to learn math when you can, when you can simply, simply you've got a calculator, you know. Uh, he didn't believe there was, it was necessary to be able to learn English or learn words uh, when a simple search tool would give you the definition of what those words are. Um, if there's anything with regards to history, he could just simply ask uh, a question of one of these, one of these three goddesses. Um, and if he doesn't know where to go, he just needs to click begin route and on, he's on his way. You know, it's all good to go. Um, it's one of these problems that we have within society today that man consults with the groupthink of man. And as long, a man, as long as a man continues to commune within his own collective group, then he has the ability to be able to know anything. He can learn anything. And it's a real, it's a real tragedy. And the tragedy behind that is, you know, we don't know how words work. We don't understand that you can't actually do math unless you can actually know English. You can't... Well, there's an individual who said that you cannot... They said a sentence is a complete thought. Well, there's a real problem then, isn't there, if you can't string a sentence together. you can't string a sentence together, the natural consequence of that is you can't think. Okay? And we are living in a world today that has that as a fundamental underlying malady. People who can't think. People who can't think. And they go from the simplest among us right up to the leaders of nations. Perhaps leaders of nations can think. Perhaps they've been able to string a few things together and that's why we're in the trouble that we're in. And they have depended upon and relied upon a nation of people who can't. And this is a real problem. Man believes, unfortunately, that he knows everything there is to know and there is nothing more than he needs to know that's not available at his, as a ready reference. But going to God is not something that they believe that they need. They do not recognize that they have a lack. They think that they can commune within themselves. There was a gentleman who did that many, many years ago. There was a gentleman who, um, he was no fool. The Bible refers to him as the wisest man who ever lived. This man had the means at his disposal to be able to employ anything that he wanted to employ. To discover the truth about anything that he wanted to discover, he believed that he had the means to do so. This man had communion with God at one stage. God had spoken to him directly. This man built the wonderful temple, the first temple of the Lord. The man's name was Solomon. Solomon knew the Lord. Solomon had spoken directly To the Lord, the Lord had responded directly to the king. They had communion one with another. But there is a particular time in this man's life that he turned away from God. He was led astray by the many wives that he had. He had a couple. That's that's why. Yeah, he had a couple. He did have a couple. This is one of those burdens as well. I mean, you know, if you've got three hundred wives, you've also got three hundred mother-in-laws. I don't know how he did that. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, turn there with me. In the middle of your Bible you have all the wisdom books. So turn to the middle of your Bible and then turn right. You'll get to Ecclesiastes, it'll be before the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we'll take our text from verse 12. Have a look at how, how he, refers to, he refers to himself as a preacher. But also that he was king over Israel. This is one of the reasons we recognize who he is. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll we'll read first from verses 12 to 18. Solomon writes, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to greater state. And have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. So, with whom did Solomon commune to discover these things about the meaning and the purpose of life here? He says he communed within his own heart. He communed within his own heart. Something has happened here. Solomon has left off communing with God, and he has determined that he will commune within his own heart. Solomon had asked much earlier on, he said, Lord, you have given me much people, and I am set king over all this people. And the Lord had asked him, what wilt thou that I give you? And he said, because you have set me above these people, I would ask for wisdom. On how to lead these people. The Lord was pleased with this. And he said to him, because you have not asked for riches and for wealth, but you have asked for wisdom and how you would lead my people, then riches and wealth would be added onto you as well. And so Solomon became the wealthiest man who ever lived. None before, none after have been more wealthy than Solomon as far as real wealth was concerned. But so too with regards to wisdom. What do we know about wisdom? What do we know about knowledge? It's something that knowledge can do to a person, can't it? Knowledge puffeth up, it says puffs them up, makes them proud. Solomon had left off communing with God. Now he believed he had all his own wisdom given to him by God. I don't need you anymore. You've given to me everything that I need. Now I'm going to commune with my own heart to find out what the purpose and the meaning of life is. So Solomon spends the next 12 chapters journaling his journey of discovery, thinking that he can find the purpose of life apart from God only to turn back to where he first began. So you're in chapter 1. Let's go to the end of the book. Go to chapter 12. And look at the last two verses and see what Solomon comes up with. Solomon says there in verse 13, he said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for god shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil for all of this time this entire journey of 12 chapters solomon had not recognized his lack he had not identified that he had a lack He had been given everything. He had riches above that of all the nations around him and of all the kings around him. He had been given wisdom above that of all the people around him. And so as far as he was concerned, there was no lack. I've got everything. There's nothing that I need. There's nothing that I lack. But the one question with regards to the purpose of life in order to try and discover it through all his own efforts, what did he do? Remember what he did? I built me houses, I made me great works, I made myself vineyards, I, 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 I built all these great things. I had men servants and women servants, I had singers and I had all these people entertaining me. I gave myself to wine and gave myself to merriment and to laughter and what was it all? Vanity. Vanity and vexation of spirit. None of it had made a difference within his life. None of them gave him the satisfaction. None of it gave him the contentment. That he would otherwise have in the Lord. Beloved, that's that's a good picture of a lot of us at times, isn't it? We keep looking for everything else to give us the contentment. Solomon had all the means at his disposal. And we're still looking too often. The recognition of our lack is one that realizes that we have nothing if we do not have God. We have nothing if we have not the Lord. Everything else is a waste of time. It doesn't matter how great a riches that you have. It is a complete waste of time. And I, and I know I spent too long chasing after that, which I thought would satisfy. Solomon came to realize and to recognize he had a lack. The disciples did also. Hence the question, Lord, teach us to pray. You'll never discover the incredible peace and wonder of prayer if you think that the answers are in you or out there awaiting your discovery rather than right here in the Bible and in prayer before the Lord. Identifying his fullness. It's not enough to see here that the people had recognized their own lack. It's not enough to see that. There's something else that goes behind this question. There's something else that we can actually assume from this question. And it's a simple thing that we see within it when they say, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Notice they didn't go to John, but they went to Jesus. Well, this is incredible. I mean, the world doesn't know John, neither Jesus uh, the world looks for the gurus of this world, all the gurus that, that are here that, 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 that puff themselves up and try and puff the people up and then they make merchandise of the people. They don't have the answers themselves. I know, I used to go and see these gurus. I used to pay a lot of money to go and see these gurus. I would buy their books, I would buy their tapes. Tapes, tapes they're, they're like two little wheels and they've got a ribbon that goes around And they turned all in the same way. And and they turned backwards if you want to rewind it. Anyway, you you, you know what what tapes are? Tapes, cassette tapes. So I used to have those. So I'd have that. I joined the Book of the Month Club. And I did all of that sort of thing. And I would literally, I won't tell you how much I've spent because my wife's here. Um, uh, So, But when you look at them, when you, you know, these are the gurus, these are the life coaches, these are the Anthony Robbinses of the world, these are the, these, are the, these are the Deepak Chopras, the Tom Peters, the Oprah Winfrey's, these are the ones who, who, who give the impression that they have all secret knowledge of the universe and they are willing to share it to everybody for a fee and in that sharing they find themselves um, professing to be wise but become fools. And sadly, what they do is find themselves not being able to find the answers to eternal life and the meaning of life. And those who are seeking after life, they prevented from entering into life. Jesus actually said that. Jesus spoke about the lawyers. He said, woe well, unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye enter not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. In Luke eleven fifty two. But not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus Christ had a fullness within him. He had a fullness of understanding, a fullness of knowledge, a fullness of that which the disciples yearned to seek after the understanding of, and they identified that fullness in him. John chapter 6, verse 62. Verse 62. I'll read a few verses there. 62, John 6, 62. Jesus says this. He says, What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Now we come to this this introduction here of this this two-part key to our faith. There's a two-part key, you see, to our faith. You see, there's a a two-part key to this, this, this daily habit that, we want to enter into with regards to prayer. You see, it's not just prayer. You see, if you haven't got the other element to it, then prayer doesn't help a tremendous amount. There's two things that come together to make one. And what we see here is, to whom shall we go? Thou hast what? The words of eternal life. Long and hard I have preached so often that you must be in the word you must be reading the book of life, and you must be in prayer. Those two come together. You forsake one, that you don't have half. You know, if you don't, if you're not reading your Bible, you're not half as blessed. If all you do is pray, and if you pray, and if you don't pray, and you're only reading your Bible, you're not you're not half as wise either. Those two come together. If you don't have both of them, you have a little more than nothing. A mousetrap. A mousetrap has five components or a mousetrap. It has the base. It has the hammer, it has the clip, it has the spring, and it has the nails that fasten all those pieces to the base. If you remove just one of those elements, you don't catch four-fifths as many mice. You've got a broken mousetrap. Okay, it's the same here. It's the same here. If you're not reading the Word of God and you're spending time in prayer, it's not effective. If you're not, if you, if you're, if you're if you're reading the word of God and you're not spending time in prayer, in prayer it's not effective. The both comes together. We're praying to the Lord Jesus, yet he is the one that has eternal, the words of eternal life. And they're here. They are here. Jesus is the word of God. That's his name. He is called the word of God. In the beginning was what? The word. And the word was made God and was God. What else is there? There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Right? In Revelation chapter 19, remember, he comes riding on that horse and he has a name on him that no man knew but he himself. And his name is called the Word of God. There's something about that that's literally entwined with regards to his Word. And when we pray to the Word, we need to pray with the Word. The scriptures need to be within us. Now, one of the things that you notice that people who pray, who love the Lord and you love listening to them pray, they so often use the word of God to pray. It's like we are praying scripture back to the Lord and that's what encourages us. That's what gives us strength and that's what, that's what ruminates within us. It blesses us abundantly because his word gives us the reminder. D.L. Moody wrote, the two First, and essential means of grace are the word of God and prayer. By these comes conversion, for we are born again by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. By these also we grow, for we are exhorted to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. And we cannot grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, except we also speak to him in prayer. It is by the word that the Father sanctifies us, but we are also bidden to watch and pray, lest we enter into temptation. Arthur T. Pearson, in his book Lessons in the School of Prayer, wrote this. He said, God has appointed two means, and when used jointly, they never fail. First, a meditative reading of Holy Scripture, and secondly, a habitual communion with him in the closet. These two are, in fact, so closely related that they are not only mutually helpful, but they operate upon us in ways almost precisely alike. Both introduce us into God's secret chambers. And this is the wonderful beauty of of prayer and of the word of God. You desire to pray and to be effective in prayer. You need the word of God. You need both of those within you. I love this. I've got to read this. This was also by A.T. Pearson, who wrote this. He said, Let those who have felt this double effect of the Spirit's teaching bear witness to the marvellous result. The Bible becomes a transformed book. It was before the best of all books, but it is now the Book of God, a chamber of disclosed mysteries, a house of many mansions, in which new doors constantly open into new apartments, massive and magnificent, God's art galleries, museums of curious things, treasuries of celestial gems. The devout student is filled with wonder, transported with delight. Words open with new meanings until we look through them into depths and heights, breaths and lengths that are infinite. We are looking at a firmament which was before clouded, but the clouds are parting and heavenly constellations are visible. These are men who you can't help but as you read them, see them on their knees before God every day. You can't help as you read them but see that they are before the throne of God's grace. That not only that, though, they fill their hearts with the knowledge of the word of God. They fill their hearts with the scriptures. And as they write, poetry and prose just seems to come straight out of their lips. You know, I quit school in year 10. My worst subject was English, you know, and it's one of the blessings to be able to look at the word of God and think, wow, this can transform lives. And when you're spending time with the Lord in prayer, you are changed. Both of those work wonderfully together. The word of God permits the avenues of answered prayer. The Bible is the channel through which the Lord responds to all the requests of the heart, God's words run through the deep recesses of the mind when we are in prayer and prepares the answer that we need when we bend our knee to the Lord. Prayer is like when we turn a tap looking for a response. The word of God is like the pressurized water that flows when the tap is turned. And if there's no water, turning the tap makes little difference, does it? There has to be both there. Both have to be there. Paul wrote of the church, Saying of Christ that He sanctify, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word in the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter two, chapter five twenty five. This is where we identify the fullness of the Lord. This is where we identify it. We identify it when we come to prayer. the The disciples knew that Jesus and Jesus alone is He who is called the Word of God, and they knew that. In Him is the fullness of that answer. In Him and in Him alone. Lord, teach us to pray. Thirdly, it's humbling our spirit. Lord, teach us to pray. I'm not sure how many, um, yeah, I'm not sure how many trips that you've made with your spouse, and, um, and and find where you're going. And then comes that logical but really annoying question. Honey, why don't you ask for directions? I, I don't know. I don't know how many times you've tried putting IKEA furniture together. Um, and after all the frustrations and putting the IKEA furniture together, you get that equally logical, but really annoying question: "Honey, why don't you read the instructions?" Um, you see where I'm going with this, yeah? It. It takes humility to ask to be instructed. It takes humility. The disciples didn't have the answer and it took a humility, a, a, an open recognition that they don't even know how to pray before they ask the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, we have Christians who are new Christians and come to the Lord for the first time and um, and they've never really prayed. And, and they listen to some of the prayers of the people within the church. And go, How do they learn that? How do they do that? How do they, how do they, how do they know to, how to pray? I mean, how do you pray? I don't know how to pray. Um, you know, it, it's one of the strangest things to see. There was a time when I was a new Christian. Um, was, I was 29 years of age, and I, and I also needed to know how to pray. I didn't know how to pray. They said, just pray. It's like talking to God. Okay. Okay. Like talking to God. All right, so... So I, I prayed and I and I said, "Hi God," um, I said, "Hi God, it's uh, it's Eddie here," but you already knew that. Um, the prayer didn't last much longer than a minute, I don't think. Okay, um, but just getting to that one point, to getting to that point where you humble yourself. To pray before God is just so vitally important. That's where it begins. Humility is what brings us on our knees before a holy God. This complete surrender of ourselves to the Lord, knowing him to be all-powerful and us to have no ability, knowing that he knows everything and we know nothing, and we set ourselves before him. It's pride, however, that prevents our prayers being lifted up to the Lord. It's pride that stops us from actually seeking after God. I mean, you know, what does he know that I don't know already? You know, I don't need to go after the Lord because I already know what I want to do. I already know the direction that I want to go. I already know the decision that I want to make. Why do I need to go and seek after God? If I go and seek after God, he might tell me something that I don't want to know. You know, but it's not until we humble ourselves and seek the Lord that he will answer. Turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 12. Verse 17, books of your Bible are historical. They are narrative. The books of Chronicles comes after the books of Kings. The books of Chronicles are very similar to the books of Kings. book of Kings deals with both the southern and the northern tribes of Israel. The book of Chronicles only deals with the southern tribe of Judah. The books of Kings are political. The book of Chronicles is, well, it's not political. spiritual. It's spiritual. A lot of people often wonder the, why these books seem to repeat. Why do we need both of them in there? They come from things in a different direction. It's, uh, it's fascinating to watch. Second Chronicles chapter 12. We'll stay in here for a few, uh, a few passages in Second Chronicles. Chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. King Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, and he exalted himself. And because of that self-exaltation, he lost rule over 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in verse 9, the king of Egypt came upon him in this, in this scene. 2 Chronicles 12, verse 9. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, he took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which which Solomon had made, instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance to the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again to the guard chamber. And when he humbled himself... The wrath of God was turned from him, that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. You recognize something? A couple of things there. Rehoboam is the king of Judah. Rehoboam was the king of Judah. When he exalted himself, things went poorly with all of Judah. Rehoboam is the representative of the nation. And as the representative of the nation, the nation cops the problems that Rehoboam built up. OK, because he exalted himself, then that is what happens. And you all remember what happened with Rehoboam. He didn't even want the advisors that his, his, um, <coughs> his father Solomon had. He listened to his own advisors and everything went pear-shaped. Go forward to chapter 32 of Second Chronicles. Chapter 32. Now we have Hezekiah. Hezekiah lifted up his own heart in pride at certain stages. And, uh, and this is the record that we have of him. 2 Chronicles 32 verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick to the death. Amen. Yeah? Okay. In those days, Hezekiah was sick to the death and prayed unto the Lord. And he spake unto him and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. You remember the story? You remember the account? Fascinating account. Hezekiah was sick nearly to death, and he cried, And he said, Lord, you know, have I not been faithful to you? Have I not done your will? Haven't I done your work? I've been faithful to you because Isaiah had told him, um, you know, get your things organized because uh, you're going to die and not live. And Hezekiah was in tears with regards to that. He humbled himself before the Lord. And the Lord had given him an uh, extension of time. Um, Fifteen years he was given. He was given an extra 15 years. But he was proud. Those fifteen years went good. Fifteen years. He didn't finish well; finished poorly. The kings of Babylon came, and uh, they wanted to see his stuff, and he showed them everything that he had. He was proud; he lifted up himself; he exalted himself. And then you've got Isaiah that comes to him and says to him, "What do you showed them?" And he said, "Everything. Showed him everything." He goes, oh, they're going to come. They're going to take every way, everything you got, and they're going to take your people away too. You know, they're going to do this in the days of your sons." Oh. Okay, good. So peace will be in my days. (laughs) That's okay. This is Hezekiah. Uh, He did. He did. He exalted himself in prayer. Have a look at the next chapter, chapter 33. This is now the son Manasseh, one of the most evil kings of Judah. The Bible said that blood ran through the streets of Jerusalem up to the horse's bridles with Manasseh the king. 2 Chronicles 33 verse 11. Wherefore? The Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the, Lord God, of his, before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Do you begin to see a thing? Something happens to an individual when they humble themselves before God. Favor is shown them when they humble themselves before God. We go to our knees in prayer before the Lord. We go to him not demanding of him this and that and the other. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. But we ask of him, we beseech him, we, we seek after him, recognising we have nothing of ourselves, no strength of our own, no ability of our own. We humble ourselves before God and he hears. Humility is absolutely key. There's no point going to him. I mean, imagine coming to your parents thinking that you know it all and asking them a question that you already know the answer to, or you think you know the answer to. No, it's, it's, it's with humility that we come before the Lord. That's how we deal with this. What extent should we humble ourselves before the Lord? Matthew 18, verse 1. Let me read for you. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoso, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. My daughter Saskia came over uh, yesterday, and um, she brought my grandson over, Arthur. He's, he's only little. He's only like... He's only like Two and, a half, two and a half months old. He's tiny. And, um, and she, put him, she put him down on the, on the couch there. And there he was, you know, waving his arms and his legs and he was smiling and he was talking and everything. And I'm looking at him, so incredibly cute, but also looking at him going, he is absolutely helpless without his mum. Like, absolutely helpless. Jesus said, that's how we are to come to him. We are to come to him in just the same way. And looking at at my grandson that way made me realize that's what I am before the Lord. I need him and I need the sincere milk of the word of God to grow. But I need him at every moment to sustain me and to help me to grow, you know. That is the picture that we need of ourselves. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. You know, we can do nothing. Last point this morning, exalting his wisdom this afternoon. I'm going to stop saying morning this afternoon. Exalting his wisdom. In our passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, simply says again in verse 1, And it came to pass that, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, "'Lord, teach us to pray,' as John also taught his disciples. To the disciples there was no alternative. They could indeed have gone to the man that Jesus himself said was the greatest of all prophets that preceded him. This is, the, this is John the Baptist. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist.' Indeed, the disciples did consider John as a teacher, didn't they? They saw him as a teacher. They saw that his teaching was, um, was divinely appointed by God and it was also teaching how his disciples could also um, pray to God. Yet it was not to this great, greatest prophet who ever lived that they came to. They didn't go there. They didn't exalt the, the, the John the Baptist's wisdom they did exalt the wisdom of Christ. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. This recognition is found here as well. Why should I go to John the Baptist when you have the words of everlasting life, of eternal life? Why should we go anywhere else but to you? You have the words of eternal life. Just think on that for a moment. We are charged in the word of God to pray and to do so continually. We're told that God hears our prayers. He hears us. He hears us. God hears us. He hears our prayers, and just that is absolutely astounding. I mean, when you think about it, it's astounding. And 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 and, you know, the the world recognises that as an astounding concept. Oh, you talk to God, huh? Yeah, right. Okay, and he he answers you. Yeah, you know. They think that it's madness, yet this is exactly what we have in the Scriptures. We speak to God, God hears us, and he answers. He answers through his word, most often through his word, and sometimes through the experiences that are in your life when you're petitioning him. But he certainly does answer nonetheless. I don't know how often you've written to the Prime Minister. How many of you have written to the Prime Minister expecting him to read your letter? I mean, seriously, you know, yeah, Phil has written to the prime minister. I don't know if he's actually expected him to read the letter. How many of you have actually gotten a personal letter from the prime minister in response to yours that actually answers the things that you asked him? Phil? No, no, didn't come, did it? One came, but it was quite generic, I'm sure. Yet here we have in the word of God the opportunity to go to the one who sets kings above nations. Here we are told in the scriptures that we have the right and the privilege and the opportunity to go before the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is the one who actually puts kings in their places, who shifts their hearts as the rivers of water as he turns them wherever he will. And we have the privilege to go to him. This is an incredible picture, an incredible thing to think about, that we have this wonderful privilege before us. And the apostles knew this of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they exalted his wisdom above everybody else's. They wouldn't go to anybody else. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. It's one of the beautiful things that they see about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's something that we also see in scripture. I love it with, uh, with Job. Job recognizes this. They esteemed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They lifted him up. They exalted his words, what he would have to say. Thou hast the words of eternal life, everlasting life. Job knew this too. He says, "I have esteemed the word, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. More than my necessary food. All this is where the word of God and our time of prayer meet. We esteem his words more than our necessary food, and yet we seek after him in prayer. These two things come together in the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God. We pray to him, yet he is the word of God. He is our joy. He is our hope. This is again where the word of God and the matter of prayer meet in one phrase in this portion of, Lord, teach us to pray. That's where the transformation happens. There's a there's a whole bunch of chemicals that um, on their own are relatively benign. You can use them for whatever they can be employed with on their own. But uh, there's also a whole bunch of chemicals that, when you put them together with another chemical, things change. You know, some explode whatever it is, that they, they are never the same as they were when they were in isolation, when they were separate from one another. That, that is where the, the, you know, the, the, the whole is better and bigger than the sum of its parts. And this is what we see with regards to the Word of God and with prayer. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Last portion of Scripture we'll turn to. Psalm chapter 1. Just three verses there we'll, we'll look at. What a beautiful passage this is. Blessed, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. In his book, Lessons in the School of Prayer as Taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, A.T. Pearson writes this concerning the effect of the word of God when it comes to prayer and how both working together transform us. This is what he writes with regards to this psalm. He says, but (coughs) as the first psalm teaches, he who would find such delight in the law of the Lord must meditate therein day and night. He must be a sort of sacramental tree of life planted by the rivers of water. Mark the instructive, emphatic metaphor. The tree is permanently planted in the soil. Its roots are fixed organs of nutrition, constantly subordinate to the double purpose of growth and fruitfulness. Through the spongelets at at their extremes, the tree takes up the moisture of the river into itself, transmuting the water into sap, which deposits woody fibre in the branches and becomes juice in the fruit. The disciple is planted by the river of God, the Word which go forth out of his mouth, he takes up into himself the very water of life, transmuting truth into character and precepts and promises into practice. And so he who reads God's word and, like the cattle that chew the cud, ruminates upon it, comes to know God through his word, as we come to know men through their candid and self-revealing utterances. To meditate on God's words introduces us, to the secret chambers of God's thoughts and imparts insight into God's character he becomes sure he becomes sure there is a god who sees him unveiled in the scriptures hears his still small voice in their audience chambers traces his glorious footprints on their golden pavements and in times of temptation trial sorrow doubt or any other need God's words are so brought to his remembrance and applied by the Spirit to his needs that they become to such a reader individually God's words to him. There is an infinite value in the word of God and there is an increasingly infinite value in the word of God when that is joined together with prayer. These two things coming together are so much more than the sum of its parts. These two things coming together brings you infinitely before the throne of his grace and you are changed and transformed and God moves mountains around you. And if you believe this as the scriptures teach, then there is nothing that is withheld from you. You have everything that heart could wish and in every way submitting yourselves completely to the ordinance of God and to his will. In the end. He has you in the center of his will. He has a purpose for you, and that purpose always is good. There is a time that is drawing near that we're going to be seeing him face to face. That time is drawing near, and all our hopes, all our joy, everything is going to be evident before us. There's going to be a time when the communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ now is going to be done away. We're going to be seeing him face to face. There's going to be a time when the time of prayer is no more necessary because we're going to be with the Lord forever. In a way, you sort of feel like, oh, I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss that time of prayer. (laughs) How much better to have him right there. How much better to have him right there. There's a beautiful hymn. And it finishes this way when it comes to the Lord bringing his bride home to be with him. And it finishes in its last stanza and says, Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share, till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air, Farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. Maranatha, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy of Christ, for the wonder of his word, for the majesty of that time that we can spend with him in prayer, that we are lifted up, our burdens are lightened, and in every way, dear Father, we can be strong in our Lord. You lift us up, dear Lord, on the wings of angels, and in you, dear Lord, we will run and not be weary. We will be strong in all things, dear Father, you have before us. We ask you, dear Lord, that you would continue to be with us, that you would bless us, that you would strengthen us and help us to glorify our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.